This is State of Water. This is State of Water. State of Water. State of Water coming at you right now. State of Water, a podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. Welcome back to the podcast for our first episode of 2020. We're grateful to have you on board. Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org slash contact to sign up for our mailing list. State of Water is made possible through a generous contribution from the Esperance Foundation. On this episode, we feature part one of Seth Bernard's in-depth interview with Jim Olson. Jim Olson is the founder and president of Flow for Love of Water, a Traverse City-based organization empowering communities and leaders to protect the Great Lakes. A celebrated legend in his community, Jim Olson has nearly 40 years of experience as an environmental, water, and public interest law advocate and champion dedicated to protecting the waters and ecosystems in the Great Lakes Basin. In this first installment, Jim breaks down the Public Trust Doctrine, a centuries-old holistic framework at the core of Flo's work. Here to introduce you to Jim is Seth Bernard. Hello, Seth Bernard here with the Clean Water Campaign. Welcome. I'm here with Jim Olson. Jim Olson is a legend, a hero, a hugely influential uh, environmental lawyer, and he is the founder and the president of Flow for Love of Water. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you, and thank you for the introduction. I am the, the, the president and founder of Flow, and I'm uh, thankful to have been able to play that role. Well, let's get right into it here. I could spend most of the interview just kind of going over all the amazing things you've done in the past. You have a decorated history and you've been vigilant for decades. Um, but I really want to use this platform to highlight the work of flow first and foremost. And that Thank work you. is absolutely that work is rooted in the public trust doctrine. 
So can you give a little background about what public trust is, how far back it goes, and what it represents? Yes. Um, the, the public trust doctrine was first recognized in the Justinian Code of Rome, and that's about 1,500 years ago. <clears throat> and um, it basically said that the air, the water, and all things that run wild are common to all, and they're held... Uh, for the benefit of all citizens. So if you understand what I just said in the practical sense, it literally means that water is not a thing like your pen that can be held and owned and occupied exclusively, just like air. Now, yeah, it can be put in a bottle, but that's a whole other question. In its natural state, it is a commons. Mm -hmm. And so the early codes recognize that. The next step in the evolution of the public trust doctrine occurred in England with the Magna Carta. Prior to the Magna Carta, through favors, uh, the, the lords were able to have their own private weirs on the rivers and block citizen access to oyster beds and fishing, which were by custom theirs. Mm. Uh, and so there are paragraphs buried in the Magna Carta which remove the weirs that had been granted to the various lords as favors on the part of the crown. Thus was born the right of access and the right paramount right of the public to the flowing and navigable waters of, of a country. Mm -hmm. In 1821, after the revolution in this country, um, a state Supreme Court in New Jersey recognized and labeled this as a common property held in trust for all citizens, for fishing, mm -hmm. boating, swimming, recreation, sustenance, which is food and drinking water, mm -hmm. a fairly critical issue in Michigan and elsewhere in the world today, mm -hmm. uh, that all of those things were paramount uses that must be protected on the part of government as trustee of the trust. Just like a, uh, imagine uh, uh, the trustee of a bank having to take care of your uh, trust account, which you've entrusted to them, and they have a fiduciary duty to manage that for your benefit. Well, this kind of a trust has the same duty, this public trust, but it's held for everybody. And each citizen even has a, a legally recognized interest in the fishing, boating, and swimming, and their needs in navigable waters. So that, in essence, is the public trust doctrine. In 1892, the Michigan well, the U.S. Supreme Court, and then shortly thereafter, the Michigan Supreme Court, recognized that all the Great Lakes were subject to this public trust. And uh, that involved uh, an attempt by the legislature of Illinois to um, give away a square mile for the benefit of jobs and industry to the Illinois Central Railroad Company. That didn't go well with the citizens of Chicago who were used to their uh, waterfront. And um, the next legislature that uh, sat repealed the gift or grant of that bottom land and water to the railroad company. And the railroad company sued. It gets into the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, wait a minute, the Great Lakes and all navigable waters and waters tributary to the Great Lakes, and this is nationwide in every state, navigable waters, are held in, uh, in public trust. They are not alienable. They cannot be sold and disposed of to a private purpose. Mm -hmm. 
they have to be held for a public purpose, they're common to all, and they have to be held and managed to protect fishing, boating, swimming, navigation, and the needs of citizens. It's of paramount interest to all else. Hence, the legislature didn't have the authority to give that square mile of Lake Michigan to the railroad company, so it was void. Hmm. Thus was born the public trust doctrine in the Great Lakes. Hmm. That is the fundamental principle behind Flo's work and why after the Nestle case in Michigan and some other water cases and looking at what was happening worldwide in 2008-2009, it seemed to me at the time that the, the, the idea of stewardship in a legal framework that was recognized, has been recognized for almost 2,000 years, is a really important principle to begin to look at as to whether or not this offers a tool for the crises we face in this century. Invasive species in the Great Lakes, climate change, water levels up and down, algal blooms and killing off one-third of the, you know, western one-third of Lake Erie. Uh, what about the infrastructure collapse in Flint and the shutoffs in Detroit? If people have a basic right to drinking water, why is that happening? Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you can move worldwide and look at what's happening worldwide without the access to water and the incredible, devastating impacts of people without water, disease, um, population migration, so we're, and, and the increasing demand and consumption of water. So we're, we're in, in the critical time frame we have because it's been uh, magnified literally uh, by uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. So we have a we have a water crisis crisis uh, locally, uh, everywhere, and we need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So the public trust doctrine offers a framework in which we can begin to discuss the science, the reality of the science, the reality of human impact on the global water cycle, and the the proposition that if we understand that impact and we understand that water is held in trust and to be passed on with integrity and quantity and quality to the next generation, we now have a framework in which to make very good decisions. Mm -hmm. Very good economic decisions, not wasteful. Very good quality of life decisions. Very good water decisions, very good energy decisions, very good land use decisions, very good, you know, on and on. When you get looking at how we live in a hydrosphere and understand the different arcs of the water cycle, and, and human activity causes real impacts that interferes with that cycle, down to the very local level of people in Detroit or Flint, or the the, uh, the the people that have uh, water wells with PFAs in it or other toxic chemicals, it be, it's very real. So now we have a proposition in which we can begin to fit cause and effect and make decisions, good decisions for the future, for our mm -hmm. future generations. And here's a doctrine that is generational. Mm -hmm. It is just, justice, and it's generational. And there isn't really any common law that's been recognized, uh, a common law principle, that's so old and so embedded in our culture and custom to turn to than this. So it's not like we have to invent something. 
It's fantastic, and it's it's the, it's been violated. Obviously, public trust. It is the law, and yet we yeah. have to we have to be vigilant and, and fierce. And well, and so you just touched on a very important question. Um, and, and the question is, you, you said it's been violated. In fact, the knowledge and understanding the public trust doctrine was buried, hmm. you know, in court decisions in old leather-bound books for 150 years in libraries around the country and the world. Uh, and so it, it's been violated in the sense that we haven't even been aware of its importance for a long time. Mm. And in 1970, uh, Professor Joe Sachs, when he was at the University of Michigan Law School, wrote a, wrote a law review article that is now the most cited and quoted law review article in the realm of environment, natural resources, and water in the history of the United States and probably elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but he wrote a law review article that brought to public consciousness the existence of the public trust doctrine and the importance of the public trust doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, and I was fortunate to uh, have talked with him and then when I did uh, my master's in law work after my law degree uh, and I'd been working for a few years, I uh, signed on, uh, and he was. Uh, I was fortunate that he agreed to be my mentor mm. when I did a master's in law at the at the law school in, in Ann Arbor, and uh, was able to have a closer look at the public trust doctrine because I was fascinated by the doctrine. That's why I decided to do a master's uh, uh, in law in public water, public lands, and specifically understanding the breadth and possibilities of the public trust doctrine. So in some sense, forming flow is sort of, uh, you know, not intentional, but, but, but the seeds, I guess, were there uh, all along. And, and uh, after the Nestle case, looking at the, you know, it was like a lens in which you saw the bigger issues involving water mm -hmm. uh, and the battle on the ground and the importance of Nestle over water being removed forever from aquifers and being claimed as products and causing mm -hmm. harm and disrupting cultural norms. Mm -hmm. uh, what does all that mean? So, um, so in some sense, uh, flow became a way in which we could move forward uh, and begin to explore this principle. And most importantly, which gets to your violation question, what use is it? <laughs> How do we demonstrate its application? Mm -hmm. How has it been violated and how can we change that? Mm -hmm. So the violations today are a result of a series of very good environmental laws, federal and state across the United States and, and, and elsewhere from 1970 until 1990, until this deregulation free market uh, mentality began to grip and, and um, uh, stifle the reality of the need to protect the planet in, in, in the 19, late 1980s, 1990s. So you have a situation now where those laws protected groundwater, wetlands, air, lakes and streams, but they didn't look at it holistically. So you have a set of rules for groundwater. You, have, you can discharge so much to groundwater uh, you know, there's no non-degradation rule. If you meet water quality standards, you get to discharge the pollutant. If you meet 
lake and stream standards, you get to discharge the pollutant. It is not a non-degradation standard. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well in the, in the 70s and 80s. But the fact is, these laws, these little boxes, can't hold the systemic threats and they can't, they can't address the systemic threats. They, when I say they can't hold, the harm and threats are spilling outside the framework of, right. of our existing environmental water law framework that started in the 1970s. And it's compounded by the fact that the deregulation, neoliberal, defunding, deconstructing mm -hmm. government and free market theory, which is nothing more than an excuse to exploit, um, that those things have led to very serious consequences. And the examples are uh, the algal bloom in Lake Erie. I couldn't point to a better example of how on earth, if you have an ethic and a, and a policy of no water pollution or no significant water pollution, how did that happen mm -hmm. in our existing laws? And it's the spillover. They don't work with these big systemic continuous kind of threats. How did climate change happen? Because the air pollution control laws and the water laws don't look at each other and didn't understand the relationship to see that climate change is as much a water issue as it is an atmosphere issue. I mean, the atmosphere is a hydrosphere. It's connected to the water cycle. Mm -hmm. So what the public trust doctrine does is it says, well, let, you know, let's take algal blooms. Let's bring... The, let's bring that problem down to, 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 to what's happening and ask ourselves about how this public trust doctrine applies, because that's what flow does, whether it's algal blooms or the, uh, the, the, the bottled water issue um, and some of these other things we, we can talk about. So you have in several river basins flowing in from Indiana and Ohio and, and southern Michigan, the Raisin River and Monroe, flowing into Lake Erie. And you have very large historical farming interests, which uh, up till a few years ago did not um, increase phosphorus loads, and we didn't see algal blooms like we had seen, you know, 50 years before when mm -hmm. we got rid of uh, phosphorus and laundry detergents. So what, hap what, is, what has happened is the, the intensity of agriculture, the intensity of irrigation and fertilizers required by CAFOs and required by farms that grow grains, particularly corn, for ethanol, and the production schedule of that, because the more you can produce, the faster you can produce, the more money you make. All of that compounded to, along with climate change and rainfall events that were larger and more intense and less predictable, uh, washed uh, uh, from runoff a lot of phosphorus and nutrients into Lake Erie causing these toxic algal blooms, shutting down the water supply in Toledo and Monroe and closing down beaches, closing down fishing. No, you know, so swimming is gone, drinking water is gone, <laughs> fishing is gone, and the Federal Clean Water Act and the EPA regs and the Ohio water quality regs don't address this. They try to. It's called non-point runoff standards, but it's all voluntary. It's, it's bureaucratic in the sense that it takes forever to get it done. Chesapeake Bay is a great example. We have the solutions for setting a, 
uh, phosphorus limit for Chesapeake Bay 20 some 25 years ago. It's still not done. There are still battles over uh, who gets who gets to limit who and who gets to do what mm -hmm. around Chesapeake Bay. So the laws didn't work. Let's look at the public trust doctrine. Governments have a trustee duty to protect fishing, navigable waters, to protect fishing, boating, swimming, navigation, drinking water, sustenance. That duty is to assure that nobody impairs that generation to generation. So here we have a simple common law standard that says you can't impair the quality and quantity of the Great Lakes. And you have a clear situation here where a number of large farming interests, not the, not the small farmers so much, you know, maybe cumulatively, and it's not just farming, there's also contribution from uh, waste treatment and uh, the problem of uh, storm, uh, stormwater overflows on treatments, and uh, you know, that's also been part of this problem. But the fact is, the standard of the public trust doctrine of no impairment has been violated. And we know who the defendants would be. We know who's violated. And we know that government has a legal duty to do it. And citizens are the legal beneficiaries that have a right to enforce this principle. Mm -hmm. And so it's a perfect example of how we can actually address a massive, unconscionable situation that is allowed to evolve, mm -hmm. which you know, anyone that looks at the pea soup and understands the toxicity of these uh, harmful algal blooms, anybody in their right mind would say, you know, we have to do something about this. It's just that the sectors that benefit from this move slowly. It's not to their advantage to say we're going to stop doing this. Mm -hmm. And there are times in history, just like the people in Chicago rose up to fight the loss of a square mile of Lake Michigan under the public trust doctrine, like the people in Great Britain and England, which rose up and included in the Magna Carta the right to fish and boat and swim and survive, Lake Superior and the algal bloom situation re represents the same kind of problem and the same opportunity to address the violation with this public trust doctrine. Mm -hmm. So you have a holistic framework. Exactly. So We know science. Science has rapidly, in the water world, science has rapidly increased its understanding, particularly using uh, real data and calculations as well as uh, better and better computer modeling of watersheds and what happens with water in soils and evaporation and the whole water cycle. They can now model this. So we have, we have an understanding of science. We know climate change, for example. We have a Great Lakes Compact that protects the public trust in the Great Lakes because it can't be diverted unless it's bottled water. Mm -hmm. It can be exported, right? So climate change through evaporation, here's human conduct in the water cycle. Climate change creates evaporation and continued evaporation in the fall, well, heats up the water, you get great evaporation, and then it dumps somewhere. 
but you're lifting water out of the Great Lakes Basin and it goes somewhere else. Now, other water is coming in, but the fact is climate change disrupts and creates diversions of water either in or out of the Great Lakes Basin at, at magnitudes greater than any diversion that we have. And so if water levels and fishing and boating, if fishing and boating and swimming and drinking water and uh, uh, the, the rights of people that depend on the, the levels of the Great Lakes and the lakes and streams and the wetlands that are all, all part of this system. Uh, if, if we know what's causing the harm and the harm affects navigable waters, fishing, boating, swimming, drinking water and sustenance and livelihood and people's health, we have, a, we have another holistic framework in which to place the science to get answers. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have a body of values and principles like the public trust doctrine, we can talk about this forever, but we're not going to get to where we need to get mm -hmm. in, the, in the time that we have between now and 2050 on this planet. And so the trust doctrine offers big picture. It offers uh, a solution. And the, and the example I've just given you, in reality, it offers a way to think about it. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's go out and file a lawsuit against the world. It's Wow, here's a framework, just like you said, there's a holistic framework in which to, in which to get a handle on the science mm -hmm. and the cause and effects so we can make sensible decisions based upon generational justice. Absolutely. So let's touch into this uh, sort of four pillar framework. You guys have this strategy based on these four pillars here uh, with flow. Number one, the sixth Great Lake. What is the sixth Great Great Lake, and how do we protect it? Yeah, yeah. There, there are four basic pillars. Uh, all of them are connected because of the water cycle, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the water cycle is connected to food and life and energy and economy and all of that. So mm -hmm. we, we we recognize that. Mm. Uh, but but the pillar of groundwater, it's called the sixth Great Lake because the groundwater underneath the Great Lakes that contributes to the Great Lakes and is part of uh, life in the Great Lakes is the size of Lake Huron, roughly. Mm. So we have a sixth Great Lake, which you don't see, as Dave Dempsey points out, mm -hmm. but which is very real. And now that we know science and hydrogeology, it can be watched. You can do monitoring and get data of flows and levels, and you can actually reproduce in three-dimensional form and in graphic form, what's happening? Mm. Uh, so the Sixth Great Lake is connected, and it becomes critical, I think, and for, for, for flow, it's critical because we have to recognize it as part of the water cycle. And it, it, it can't be ignored. Mm -hmm. It's also important because it functions as the uh, source of springs and creeks and wetlands, uh, and lakes and streams, and it functions as a, a, a basis for uh, plant life, animal life, and it functions as a basis of health. Mm -hmm. Does public trust, the question is, does public trust protect groundwater? Our view is that it does, mm -hmm. and if for some reason we haven't viewed it that way in the past, we, we've, got our, we've got our heads buried in the sand because groundwater is, the molecule of water in the, in the ground that goes to the spring to the stream is the same molecule of water that gets to the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. 
so to try to segment these it w w would be would be a, a huge and foolish uh, ignorant mistake. Mm -hmm. So what the Sixth Great Lake does is connect it, and it addresses the reality that quality and quantity of water are important, and the groundwater is part of that. And so we get to rethink what we've been doing about protecting groundwater from toxic chemicals. With the public trust doctrine as a first and foremost policy for groundwater and connected surface waters, uh, you wouldn't have a PFAS situation, the current contamination. You wouldn't have toxic chemical sites sitting in the ground being managed while they spread mm -hmm. as a public policy you would have a principle that says, wait a minute, you have a legal duty to pass laws and or enforce laws and or use the common law of public trust to make sure that these toxics do not affect health now or future generations. And so now you have another way of getting at the problem to move government and private sector in a way that's more positive for everyone mm -hmm. than just an isolated few. And, you know, as you can imagine, and everybody knows, government has been captured uh, to a great extent. And mm -hmm. we've got crises in state government, and we, we know about Congress. Nothing gets done because of this, this stranglehold between don't regulate anything and let the damage and cost and destruction mount because we're making lots of money versus let's regulate to the point where things are in balance. But to regulate means government officials have to be responsible and pass laws and enforce them. What if they don't? Which is where we are at today. Mm -hmm. In fact, laws are being passed to uh, roll back environmental protections from the 1970s, mm -hmm. which weren't you know, which, which, which aren't perfect to begin with. But it's, so it's actually going in an opposite direction uh, on the political front. Not in all, all I, mean, I mean, I'm generalizing, but that's what we've been faced with in Michigan and, and, and Wisconsin and elsewhere in the Great Lakes. So the public trust doctrine says, well, if there's a duty and the legislative branch won't do anything and the executive branch, like, let's say Governor Kasich in Ohio, said he'd do something about algal blooms, but it was all voluntary. There was never any real law said, passed that said, this, you know, the, the, it's over. We're going to have a set of regulations and it's going to work and we're not going to have, we're, we're, we're going to have, have algal blooms in Lake Erie anymore. That didn't happen. So the public trust doctrine offers a way for citizens, and particularly with groundwater, a way for citizens to demand Action in the courts. We have three branches of government in our, this is part of our democracy. Legislative branch, executive branch, and the courts. And for some reason, we forget the fact that the courts are part of our government. And when it's a check and balance, when two fail here, when these are failing, the judicial branch has a responsibility. The Michigan Supreme Court described the role of the courts in Michigan to protect the public trust in water as, quote, the sworn guardians, close quote, of the Great Lakes. The sworn guardians. Mm -hmm. And in another case, the Supreme Court said the duty under the public trust doctrine is solemn 
it's high and it's perpetual. And the other court cases have said citizens as legal beneficiaries have standing in court to enforce the public trust doctrine when the other branches of government fail. That's compelling. On our next episode, Jim Olson dissects the four pillars of Flo's work and how they utilize the public trust doctrine to protect the common waters of the Great Lakes region. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll see you then.